is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lamb. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lamb. Hello, hello, and welcome to Good Faith Effort, the world's most dangerous Bible podcast, the podcast where we show you how the values and ideas of the Bible can illuminate the most important conversations in society from politics to pop culture and beyond. And today, Good Faith Fam, uh, we are uh, firmly in bucket list territory here. We have with us one of the most important historians on the planet. He's the Joseph H. and Bella R. Braun Professor of American Jewish History at Brandeis University and the author of like a billion fabulous books, including one of my favorite books, period, Lincoln and the Jews. He's the inimitable, incomparable professor, Jonathan Sarna. And we're going to talk about Lincoln, of course. But first, let's just uh, uh, set this up a little bit. So one of the central narratives of the book of Numbers is Korah's rebellion against the authority of Moses and Aaron, beginning in Numbers chapter 16. And the whole story is just like an emotional masterpiece. It's dealing with loyalty and betrayal, leadership and ambition, courage and cowardice. I mean, if nothing else, there's a reason why Botticelli chose this as one of the frescoes to paint in the Sistine Chapel. But I want to call attention to an interesting linguistic feature of the Korah narrative. So right after the rebels are punished, God warns the Israelites never again to behave like Korah and his co-conspirators. But a man named Rabbi Chaim Kanievsky, probably the greatest living Jewish scholar until his passing this past March, uh, pointed out that what the Bible actually says in ancient Hebrew Korach v'adato could technically be translated as do not become like Korah, nor like his congregation, as if there were some difference between the other rebels and Korah himself. But what might that difference have been? And Rabbi Kanievsky proposed that while both Korah and his fellow rebels sought to usurp Moses as leader of the Israelites, they actually did so for different reasons. What Korah's colleagues were after was the glory of leadership, all the adoration and perks that come along with being front and center. They wanted fame and fortune, you know, the most base and, and ignoble of motivations. But what Korah himself wanted was the responsibility of being a leader. He appreciated how crucial it was for the people to have a good, serious leader. It's just that he genuinely thought that he could do a better job than Moses. And in that, he was grievously wrong, of course, but the sentiment was still a noble one. And so ultimately, even though the Bible saw him as a villain, in many ways an arch-villain, it still gave Korah his due as someone who understood the central importance of good leadership. And if there's one thing we felt the desperate lack of in the recent American past, it's good, solid, strong, humble leaders who unite and inspire us And it's true at the political level, but it's also true at the level of faith communities, of local communities, in the intellectual world, and far beyond. So so what? Do we despair? Well, here I think often of one of my my favorite Matthew Arnold passages from a letter he actually wrote to his mother. It's a beautiful letter. And he says, no one has a stronger and more abiding sense than I have of the demonic element, which underlies and encompasses our life. But I think that the right thing is, while conscious of this element and of all that there is inexplicable around one, to keep pushing on one's posts into the darkness and to establish no post that is not perfectly in light and firm. So how do we push our posts of light into the darkness? Well, one way to do it is through the study of history, through examining the lives of extraordinary leaders in extraordinary times, recalling their triumphs, understanding their flaws, 
and seeing what we can learn for our own times. And that's a big part of what I'd like to do on today's episode. So to unpack all of this, I brought on one of the most legendary historians ever, period, end of sentence. He's professor of American history at Brandeis University. He's Jonathan Sarna. Professor Sarna, thank you so much for being here. Delighted to join you. Thank you for that warm introduction. I'm so, so excited that you're here. And I, I want to start with you, actually. You, you are in many ways sort of the the synchronon. You are the, the representative par excellence of what it means to engage in American Jewish history. And of course, you can understand why the history of Jews in America would be interesting to Jews, but the very nature of the field suggests that it would be of interest to Americans more broadly as well. So if you're out there making the case for American Jewish history as an important and interesting field for Americans at large, what's the first way you start there? I think that American Jewish history actually sheds light on what has made America distinctive uh, in so many ways. The fact that there were Jews in America at the time of the Constitution, that the largest community was in Philadelphia for that brief period, which meant that the founders knew there were Jews there, interacted with Jews, we know, that meant that they appreciated that um, this was a multi-faith country. And uh, uh, when uh, they wrote into the original constitution, no religious test shall ever be required, they had in mind uh, the people like Jews who they knew were in America. And over and over again, it's quite fascinating to me how it is People sometimes on the periphery, the religious periphery, change America for everybody. Perhaps we'll later talk about the debate, really, that took place over whether you could have a Jewish chaplain at the time of the American Revolution, the original law, I think well-intentioned defined a chaplain well as someone who was a minister of some Christian denomination. And, uh, you know, Jews make clear that, uh, well, uh, there are other folks in this country. And Abraham Lincoln sides with them, especially after he meets with Arnold Fischel, the Reverend Arnold Fischel, who'd been the assistant rabbi to use our term, at uh, the Spanish and Portuguese synagogue, and who was only denied the right to be a chaplain because he wasn't a minister of some Christian denomination. But for that fact, the Secretary of War explicitly writes to him, uh, you know, they would have been happy to appoint him. And Abraham Lincoln thinks that's wrong, and the law in a complicated way is changed. And it's not only changed so that Jews can be chaplains, but any religious person can be chaplain. And all of the non-Christian chaplains that we have had from that day to this day 
even if some of them belong to denominations or faiths that, uh, you know, we may wonder, should they be included? Well, the answer is, if they fight for the country, they have the right to have chaplains of their religion uh, as part of the chaplaincy. And all of that goes back to the Reverend Arnold Fischel uh, and the Jews who fought for the right to have a Jewish chaplain. Those kinds of stories about how the people on the religious periphery really shape and transform the center is of interest to anybody interested in America, uh, because the presence of Jews and of others in this country uh, has made America what it really is. Had, you know, America uh, remained, uh, I don't know, a city on a hill with just Puritans, uh, it would have been a very different country. In many ways, I think and I've often thought about the Lincoln era as a turning point for Jews in the Jewish community in the American political mainstream and in American political history writ large. So we've talked just now, and it's so fascinating about Lincoln's broad view of the American political project as one that includes Jews and so many others, meaning Lincoln took kind of the broadest view of the American project in a way that I think we in many ways take for granted nowadays. But within the political world, right, what was Lincoln's attitude towards Jews in his political orbit? Yeah, it's really quite amazing. Really, in the beginning of my of the book, uh, you mentioned uh, on Lincoln and the Jews, there is a, a little portrait of all of the Jews in Lincoln's orbit. And there were a lot of them, some of them he knew well, some of them were peripheral, but it would be impossible to draw that chart of any previous president. Now, part of the reason is simply that the number of Jews had grown very rapidly owing to immigration from Central Europe. So uh, 1820, I'm not sure there were more than 3,000 uh, Jews in America, 1840, 15,000. By the Civil War, there are 150,000 spread literally from coast to coast. So everybody met them, and Lincoln met them too. Uh, in Illinois, he knew Jews. Uh, some of them had clothing stores. And one of them who becomes really a friend and a big Lincoln supporter is a man named Abraham Jonas from a significant Jewish family in London. And we know that they had been lawyers together. In those days, lawyers had to spend time on the circuit. And that meant they undoubtedly traveled together, spent evenings together. But what's fascinating is that Jonas took this great interest in politics, had a deep understanding of it. He has a role in putting forth Lincoln's name. He has a role in working in the back rooms to make sure that Lincoln gets nominated 
we actually have a letter in which he warns Lincoln, I've heard that there are people who want to make sure you are never inaugurated. Take care. Lincoln heard similar stories from other people. But it's fascinating that uh, Abraham Jonas is one of those people and the very first Jew that Abraham Lincoln appoints to a, a patronage position, which was the way you rewarded your followers, uh, was Abraham Jonas. And when Jonas unfortunately died, uh, he appointed his wife, uh, both as postmasters in Quincy, Illinois, where Jonas lived. So that kind of interaction with a member of the Jewish community, everybody knew that Abraham Jonas was Jewish. That was different than something that had been seen before. And Lincoln has many such interactions with Jews. We have an amazing letter in which Lincoln writes when he sees that a, a member of the Jewish community applies to be a quartermaster in the army. He says, we have not yet appointed a Hebrew. Uh, almost in anticipation of uh, uh, ideas of affirmative action. But what he was saying is, we want a kind of diverse military. I want to further members of uh, uh, the Hebrew people. And uh, we know that Lincoln was sympathetic uh, to Jews and that he had uh, significant friends within uh, the Jewish community, even a chiropodist, that's an old-fashioned word for podiatrist, uh, who was Jewish, named Issachar Zachary, who is much more than just his foot doctor, and he serves as a, a middleman between the Jewish community and Abraham Lincoln, today, uh, the White House has a liaison office to the Jewish community. In a sense, Issachar Zachary was the very first such person. And later, the, uh, Ulysses S. Grant would similarly have a liaison named Simon Wolf. So all of that is very new and allowed Jews to think that they are part of this political world. They're not outsiders. They are part of the community and engaged in it. And that's hugely important. And it's no accident. This has just recently been discovered. The very first political broadside that we have in which Jews are called upon as Jews to vote for a candidate dates to 1864 and, you know, vote for Abraham Lincoln and gives uh, reasons why Jews should be especially eager to do that. Uh, I'm not suggesting that all Jews were Republicans. They certainly were not. But it showed Jews engaged in the political process as insiders rather than outsiders. And that's extremely important. In addition to just being absolutely fascinating, I love that answer because I've read Issachar Zachary's name so many times that I've never pronounced it out loud because I've been too afraid to do it. <laughs> I, I think that's how he pronounced it. Yeah. And I, I actually want to go. I want to pick up on one thread there, which is Ulysses S. Grant. One thing 
that I think about often. And a lot of Jews, at least in my orbit and kind of community that I grew up in, um, that we grew up in, have expressed this many times, either to me or in public. Anti-Semitism often feels like the kind of thing where we kind of know all of the events that had the anti-Semitic attacks that happen as they happen. We're cataloging them. We're sharing information about them on WhatsApp or on Twitter or what have you. And very often, the vast majority of Americans are totally unaware of these. And you could argue they're rationally ignorant, right? Who has time to kind of investigate everything under the sun? But anti-Semitism is an important thing in many ways. I think Rabbi Jonathan Sachs it was who called anti-Semitism the canary in the coal mine for Western society. So in that context, right, episodes that Jews, especially those affected, may know a great deal about, but often go unnoticed by others. I'd love to discuss Ulysses S. Grant when he was uh, when he was a military commander, General Grant, and General Order Number 11, which I think most people, maybe even many Jews, don't know a great deal about. So can you talk a little bit about, about General Order Number 11? Sure. The background to Grant's having issued an order expelling Jews from his war zone, which is the most notorious official act of anti-Semitism in all of American history, really. The background is simple. Uh, Grant had the sense that if he could stop smuggling from the South to the North, that would starve the South, and it would hasten an end to the war, save lives, and so on. But uh, he knew that cotton was being smuggled out and medicines and other products smuggled in. Uh, Lots of people in the Civil War era, not just Grant, lots of people thought that the word smuggler and the word Jew were almost synonyms. Non-Jews who smuggled were often identified as Jews. And what seems to have happened is that Grant's own father cooked up a scheme with some brothers in Cincinnati who are engaged in the clothing trade. They, of course, needed cotton. And they had the idea that they would uh, offer the senior grant 10% of the profits. All he had to do was get his son to give them a pass so that they could move the cotton. Uh, Of course, what they didn't quite know is that Grant and his father weren't on the best of terms. Uh, They come to uh, see uh, Ulysses in Mississippi, where he had uh, his camp at that time. He instantly understands what's going on. And he says, wow, the Jews, you know, are smuggling. And uh, the only solution to this is to expel Jews as a class. That's the term that he uses. And that's what makes it anti-Semitic. Had he said, I'm expelling smugglers, we wouldn't remember it. Uh, But he decides the only way to stop smuggling is to expel, quote, Jews as a class. And he issues this general order in December of 1862, which was a rather bad time for Grant. He issues this order expelling all the Jews from his war zone. He's not yet general in chief, but it's a huge war zone 
uh, from the Tennessee uh, to the Mississippi River and really extended uh, over about five area of five states. And it is the most sweeping expulsion of Jews. And, you know, uh, it sounds like something we think about in Spain or uh, in countries that expelled Jews. Now, for reasons that I, I tried to set out in my book, Actually, very few Jews really were expelled. And the main reason is that you either consider it uh, good luck or divine providence, but Grant's troops were attacked uh, soon after he issued that order. And as part of the attack, telegraph lines were cut. And that meant that the order didn't spread. But eventually, a copy of the order reached Paducah, Kentucky, Uh, which wasn't that far away. Paducah had a Jewish community, and there is a place where we know Jews were expelled. We have the documents. They sent a word. There were only about uh, 10 Jewish families that, well, General-in-Chief has said that uh, all Jews are expelled, and it gave them 24 hours to leave. And those kinds of moments often will be the moments that uh, really uh, show, uh, you know, who are the heroes in our world and can pluck somebody up. And uh, indeed, one of those Jews who's expelled decides that he is going to go to Washington and appeal to Abraham Lincoln, no less. And uh, he... uh, takes a variety of trains. He has the forethought to take all the documents with him to show what happened. And uh, he arrives on a Friday night uh, in Washington, goes straight without changing his clothes. He's got to save the Jews of the South, goes straight to a senator who he thought could get him in to see Abraham Lincoln. And You know, Abraham Lincoln worked night and day during the Civil War. So they go over, they show Lincoln the documents. Lincoln astonishingly gives an order. The letter to Grant reads, if such an order has been issued, it is hereby revoked. In other words, they gave him an out. Maybe there was fraud. Maybe something happened we don't know here. But if you issued such an order, it's revoked by order of the president of the United States. And a couple of days later, we have from Grant's office that, you know, general order is hereby revoked. So we can trace exactly what happened. And it's really the revocation of the order that makes America different. That there are tensions in wartime, bad things happen, People are displaced. All of that we know from all over the world, well into the 20th century and to some extent to our own day. That a president in the middle of war will revoke the order and say, no, this is un-American. That's unique. Ferdinand and Isabella never said, oops, sorry about that expulsion. Nor did Tsar Nicholas apologize for the pogroms. But in a sense, here we have the revocation. And the amazing thing is that Ulysses S. Grant himself clearly comes to feel 
that the order which he had issued in haste was a blot on his career. His wife, in her memoirs, reports that uh, the general thought that Lincoln was quite right in overruling it. And when Grant is elected, after he's elected in 1868, he sends out a letter. It was front page in every newspaper, essentially apologizing for uh, the order, saying it should not have been issued. And, uh, you know, that's pretty amazing. You learn a lot about whether someone truly repents by his actions. Words are less important than actions. And one can really see how Grant, to the end of his life, was especially sensitive on Jewish matters. He appoints Jews to offices they'd never had before. When he hears Jews are persecuted in Romania or later Russia, Grant rushes to defend the Jews and to try and ameliorate the situation. And it's quite fascinating that when this man dies, someone who once would have been thought of as a Haman, a person who had uh, oppressed and expelled Jews, by the time he dies, he's become Mordecai. He's somebody whom the Jewish community uh, reveres and in a way has actually demonstrated through his actions what true penance entails. And the Jewish community recognized it and uh, indeed honored him for the person he had become. It's remarkable to think in our contemporary era in which our political vocabulary has in many ways kind of forgotten language of, of grace and redemption. We, we kept kind of the categories of sin and judgment, but it's so fascinating to consider the Grant episode from that perspective and not because it tells us how cheap redemption should be and in many ways quite the opposite. I mean, Grant worked very hard actually to reverse this element of his of his legacy. But I, I actually want to I want to get back to Lincoln. I want to touch on Lincoln's last words, which you've written about how I should like to visit Jerusalem sometime. Mary Todd uh, reports that those are his final words, how I should like to visit Jerusalem sometimes. What role did the Bible and its world play in Lincoln's you know world writings and rhetoric? Lincoln, in many ways, is our most biblical president. First of all, growing up in Kentucky, it may well be that the only book in the house was the Bible. He knew the Bible, of course, in English, but he knew the Bible backwards and forwards. Indeed, reading not just his speeches, second inaugural is a masterful sermon. Yes, anybody would be proud uh, of that. But even reading letters, you suddenly realize, oh, he's drawn that from the Bible. Uh, Indeed, there are, I think, 
all sorts of mistakes that sometimes modern biographers fall prey to because they don't realize that he is drawing lessons, wisdom from uh, the Bible. And it's not a surprise that, you know, his wife argued that his last word should be about seeing Jerusalem. And not all biographers, you know, think that it's real. Tend to think it is possible for two reasons. Number one, the 1860s is really the moment where it's gotten easier and easier to think about traveling to Jerusalem. Steamboats have been invented, and that means travel is not nearly as difficult or as dangerous. Mark Twain is going to be on that first uh, boat and famously write a book about it. But the technology clearly was there. And uh, indeed, uh, Mark Twain travels on uh, a boat that had been uh, uh, in the Civil War. So Lincoln certainly knew of these capabilities. Uh, So that's one reason I think it's possible. But even more important, even though Lincoln knew the Bible so well, he felt that he had not yet had the kind of religious experience that in his tradition, a true saved Christian needed to have. And he had all sorts of religious questions. And indeed, the Civil War filled him with questions. How could God have allowed so many people to die. Uh, To this day, it's our um, most deadly war. And of course, America was much smaller. Uh, There never was a a war in which such a high percentage of Americans died as the Civil War. How did God make it happen? And in his second inaugural, he implies it was punishment for the sin of slavery. But He wondered, how could it be? So to find out whether he himself might be saved as a human being and to try and explain uh, what America had just been through, uh, he wanted the experience of going to Jerusalem, the holy city. No doubt he would have gone to holy sites, there are many holy sites, only to Christians there. And he hoped that he uh, might, through that, uh, better understand what had happened. He certainly wouldn't have been unique in doing that. Uh, Americans were deeply interested in what they called the Holy Land. And we know of other, many other Americans who either visit or even settle. So I I have no doubt that Lincoln really uh, did hope to travel after the presidency. And one only need look at Ulysses S. Grant, the next, yes, Andrew Johnson is the next president, but the next successful president, eight years, (laughs) was Grant. And Lo and behold, as soon as Grant leaves office, he goes around the world, but 
crucial as part of his round-the-world tour is the time he spends in the Holy Land. There are many accounts of the tour, and, uh, you know, uh, we know the kind of public. His wife was profoundly affected. Uh, he was there in a snowstorm, and I think then and now <laughs> the Holy Land is perhaps less exciting in terrible, bad, stormy weather than in nice, sunny summer weather. But leaving that aside, the fact that Grant does go to the Holy Land I think uh, suggests some of the same reasons why Abraham Lincoln, who, who in many ways was a more religious figure uh, than Grant and more spiritually a serious figure, uh, might also have wanted to go to the Holy Land, no doubt, uh, with his Bible to uh, try and answer questions and uh, you know figure out his own religious status. So it never came to pass, of course, alas, because of John Wilkes Booth, but it may well have been that Lincoln was looking forward to the end of, not only the end of the war, but the end of his presidency so that he would finally uh, have the leisure to do some of these things. So you think back to the early days of the Roman Empire, the Caesars portrayed themselves and projected images of themselves as as having ascended into deityhood. And, you know, so the Roman Caesars were sort of god kings. And America doesn't have god kings. And we don't have political deities. But to the extent that we have political figures at all who've sort of ascended to some, to some sort of transcendence, Lincoln's probably it. The list might be Lincoln and maybe Washington, right? But Lincoln's certainly it. You know, I was raised, uh, my my incredible father as uh, deeply interested in the Civil War, a Civil War historian himself. You know, in our house growing up, you know, there was a bust of Lincoln in the house and there are pictures of Lincoln, you know, and we it's not that we were blind to any flaws that he that he had. But my question is, thinking about Lincoln and the role that he plays in the American imagination, in the American Jewish imagination, certainly, but in the American imagination as a whole, is it important to have political heroes, even legends like Lincoln? Right? Is that, is it, is that maybe a hindrance to making good level-headed policy, or maybe is it necessary for crafting the kinds of stories that bind us together? A little bit of both or neither? What do you think? I think people do need role models and Lincoln is a flesh and blood figure, meaning I don't think either Lincoln or his biographers think that Lincoln never made a mistake, never did anything wrong. Nevertheless, you look at Lincoln and you read his letters and you say, wow, we are so fortunate to have had a Lincoln, and I, I particularly point to his letters. Uh, I had an opportunity, of course, anybody can now go on the Library of Congress website and read Lincoln's letters. And it underscored for me, there is a Hebrew phrase, tocho kavoro, that his, the inner Lincoln, the private Lincoln, was every bit as good as the public Lincoln. There are numbers of presidents where when you read their letters, 
you were deeply disappointed. They are profane. They are, uh, in many ways, schemers. That is not the case uh, of Lincoln. And over and over again, the private Lincoln, the letters uh, he writes to some of his friends are really as amazing as uh, some of his greatest speeches and most inspiring speeches. So I think that when we look at, at Lincoln, you know, in a way, it's like Moses. Moses was imperfect. He was human. He disobeyed God at one point, and yet he's Moses. And the same is true of King David. What's to me amazing about biblical figures is precisely that they are portrayed as human beings. And so it is, to my mind, as Lincoln, with Lincoln. And I think it's very fortunate that we have that kind of role model to look up to and to set a standard of leadership in our country. Uh, Historically, in the 20th century, both Democrats and Republicans have looked up to Abraham Lincoln and uh, his kind of leadership and and his intuitive sense of right and wrong, I think uh, is a leadership that can still inspire uh, lots of people. And as someone who spent several years uh, immersed in Lincoln, I came away with even more respect uh, for him uh, than when I started. And um, you know, I, I think we were lucky to have him, and who knows, perhaps the country would have been uh, in a better, sh- in better state in the post-Lincoln era had he lived longer. It's quite interesting that his successors uh, were not able to attain uh, what he did, both in terms of political wisdom and in terms of a real sense of honesty. He was known in his lifetime as Honest Abe, and one can really see that uh, in the letters. So uh, because I am a an inveterate pop culture nerd, what's the best pop culture depiction of Abraham Lincoln? I, I don't know if you'd consider it pop culture. I really like the Spielberg's film, um, Daniel Day-Lewis, who even looked a bit you know, more like Lincoln, than many others. I think it's kind of interesting that it was one of our earliest Jewish composers, Aaron Copeland, who produced a, I think, a Lincoln portrait. So those are obviously two, one in music, one in film, that come, come to mind. Um, I think um, you may know a lot more pop culture than I do, but you know, he, he is a real role model. And uh, when I was uh, talking about Abraham Lincoln, in one place they gave me Abraham Lincoln socks and in another place an Abraham Lincoln hat and so on. So, uh, you know, he's even reached, and a tie, he's even reached that level of popular culture. 
So because this is a Bible podcast, I would be remiss uh, if I did not ask you this question. So you are the son of one of the most prominent Bible commentators ever, Nachum Sarna, blessed memory. He he wrote the JPS commentary in the book of Genesis, incredibly well-known and, and, and brilliant. What was it like growing up the child of a, of a Bible commentator? <laughs> well, uh, I, I think that for my father, the ability to read texts and to sit and study, that's what he passed on. Uh, to me, my memories of my father are him sitting surrounded by uh, lots of books and uh, had a large library. He, it was a library that he used, and that's a model. It wasn't a model of, uh, you know, someone who looked at his watch, oh, thank God, five o'clock, and closed everything up. That was not the case at all. But I, I also well remember even as a teenager, being impressed sometimes that my father could read even the newspaper and see things there that I had missed. Uh, I remember on one occasion, it was um, actually the invasion of Cambodia. My father put down the paper and said, somebody isn't telling the truth. That was a big statement. What do you mean, Abba? How can it be? He said, well, look, it says here only four trucks were destroyed. That means they must have known that this invasion was coming and used all the other trucks to get away. And later it turned out that's exactly what happened. And he didn't just say, oh, four trucks, keep reading. He said, gee, this doesn't add up. And that ability to read a text to ask questions, to notice things that others didn't notice. You know, that's uh, what I learned from from my father. And, uh, you know, I've had the occasion sometimes to write a very brief commentary on a document, let's say, George Washington's letter to the Jews of Newport. And looking word by word and looking up uh, every phrase and where does it come from and what is this related to? I could never uh, have done that had I not studied the Bible and indeed known uh, a Bible commentator and, and what he thought a close reading of a text was all about. Wow, that's an amazing story. <laughs> um, In the waning moments here of the podcast. So we're going to break some news. It's like 20-year-old news, but we're going to break some news. I've talked very often in this podcast about my grandfather, my teacher of blessed memory, Rabbi Norman Lamb. Many, many years ago, it was like shortly after 9-11, I recall, you and he, and I was there as an observer, just as like a young kid, like just, I wasn't even in college yet. You and my grandfather had a very unusual experience together in Switzerland. This was a convening of Jewish, Christian, Muslim political dialogue or kind of religious political dialogue. And this was back when, especially in the right in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, that was very in vogue. And the most notable attendees were several ayatollahs from Iran. And this was back when I think there was a great hope that Iran could be part of the solution rather than, as it turned out, uh, a big part of the problem. But you and my grandfather had a, a very kind of unusual experience there and and a very uh, interesting reflection upon it in the aftermath. Can you talk a little bit about what that was like? 
I mean, it, it really was my opportunity to spend time with your grandfather uh, for what was a very uh, intensive weekend and you know, one of the most uh, interesting things I've ever been called. And my recollection is that the Iranian Ayatollahs had never met Jews. They certainly weren't going to go to Israel. But the idea of meeting uh, Jews in America and learning about it was appealing. And somebody in the State Department had the idea that first they would bring a great rabbi. Your grandfather was, uh, I think, at that time already the uh, chancellor. He'd stepped down from day to day, but of the Yeshiva University and, uh, of course, internationally known. And they were sending a very important Ayatollah. Uh, both with university ties. And then the idea was, well, we also need someone who can talk about the history of Jews in America, and especially what made America distinctive. And for some reason, they asked me. And you know what was, so many things were astonishing, but what was important, and your grandfather really led the way, he wanted to make sure that this group understood he was a religious figure, and this was over the Jewish Sabbath. And he brought with him all of the Sabbath accoutrements and made sure that, uh, you know, he blessed uh, the wine and the bread and so on uh, on Friday night and said all the appropriate prayers and and the ritual at the close of the Sabbath. And, uh, you know, they they took note that uh, he's the genuine article. Of course, the moment I remember was uh, when we had our first meeting and they were glad to meet the group. But your grandfather was really the person they wanted to meet. And they went up to him. We understand that you are the Ayatollah of the Jews. Now, Rabbi Norman Lambert, I'm sure be called many things in his life, Ayatollah of the Jews, he never had been called. He realized that he didn't laugh. He realized uh, uh, that they were, this was a great compliment. Uh, later on, of course, it led to a great deal of mirth. I think even though certainly we didn't succeed, that is to say, if the goal was to uh, promote uh, and, uh, peace and friendship between Iran and the Jews of the United States or America generally, that failed. But on the other hand, I like to think that they came away respecting Judaism and having seen uh, what it meant not only to be knowledgeable about Jewish teaching, but what it meant to be an observant, religiously uh, appreciative and cognizant Jewish leader. And, uh, you know, your, your grandfather was certainly the leader of our group. And I came away thinking how fortunate we are uh, that uh, Rabbi Norman Lamb not only uh, operates within his own group uh, at the Yeshiva University, but he also knows how to behave, how to talk, how to interact, even with Ayatollahs, so that they come and respect uh, not only him, 
but by extension, all members of his faith. So it was a great moment, and in a way, an only in America moment. This was all funded by the U.S. State Department uh, in a bid and a hope to uh, strengthen religious ties between Americans and Iranians. God willing, someday it'll happen. But it didn't happen after that <laughs> meeting. And then I saw his grandson, and, you know, your grandfather thought that one day, uh, you were destined to follow in his footsteps, and so it was. Uh, well, 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 please, you can't, you can't uh, call one hundred percent of the shots, right? <laughs> please, God, he should be at least uh, like point zero one percent correct. That I'll tell you, the Ayatollah of the Jews is my favorite story that I haven't been able to tell anyone for twenty years. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, and it shows how we always view the other in terms that we understand. So, if being an Ayatollah is the highest point you can reach you apply it to others yeah unbelievable this has been really just so wonderful and such a privilege for me and i know for all the listeners to learn from you professor sarna thank you so much for being here thank you a joy really to be back with you bye-bye Sometimes anti-Semites, sometimes those fighting anti-Semitism, lament how focused the West, particularly Americans, often seem uh, upon Israel. And the truth is, I get it. I mean, you can usually tell a bad faith actor by how they literally cannot think about anything other than Jews or Israel. I mean, <laughs> take the UN Human Rights Council's shambolic obsession with Israel, and it's just extremely weird and sinister. But at the same time, I think it's worth reflecting on why Americans, to you know, borrow a phrase from Ray Charles, have Israel, the land of the Bible, on their mind. I think it's a natural outgrowth of the absolutely central role that the Bible and the Promised Land have always played in the American imagination, from the founding era to the Civil War, from the Civil Rights Movement to Reagan and the Cold War to Barack Obama and the Joshua Generation speech, and far beyond. I mean. This may not be a nation that belongs to any particular religion, as Professor Sarna said. America is an extraordinary experiment in religious toleration. But also, as Professor Sarna taught us, in a civic, literary sense, in the same way that the French have Voltaire, America has the Bible. I mean, I actually think that it would take something fundamental, something crucial away from the American soul itself to demand that its focus not be pulled again and again towards the promised land. Now, of course, we should channel that focus in healthy ways, but ultimately, I think there's something just so beautiful and characteristic of America that our greatest president's last words should be how I should like to visit Jerusalem sometime. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. And if you enjoyed the pod, please go ahead, be awesome, head into Apple Podcasts or iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and give us a rating. Five stars because it really helps people find the show. Anyway, this is Ari Lam making a good faith effort. I'll see you next time. Good Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lam. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Galad Brownstein. This is a Soul Shop podcast. Presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at GFaithEffort. 
follow Ari at Ari Lamb, and sign up for our email list at soulshopstudios.com slash goodfaitheffort. For more information about Soul Shop, follow Soul Shop on Twitter at Soul Shop Studios and on Instagram at Soul Shop underscore studios. And check out soulshopstudios.com. Soul Shop Studios.